Again, this morning, I want to thank you for joining me for this uh, uh, time on a Sunday morning when you could be doing a whole host of other things, but instead, you're here with me, and I greatly appreciate it. Today is going to be a little bit different than normal. Um, what I want to do today is to kind of go over ways that we, that we understand the Bible. I want to talk about ways that we affirm the things that we read about in Scripture. I mean, how do we know that it's all true? Well, let me, let me start off with a, with a card game. Now, there's a card game that I like to play, and it's called I Doubt It. Some of you have probably played it, others maybe not. But let me tell you what the pretense of the game is all about. You have a deck of cards, and of course in that deck there's four aces and four kings and four jacks and four queens and on and on and on. Well, what happens is that the cards are shuffled, and then those cards are distributed equally to, to all the different players. And let's say you have four players. And then what happens is the person to the left of the dealer uh, starts off, and they're required to start with an ace. So if you have an ace, then you put it down, but face down. And then it goes around to the next person. He puts down twos, the next person threes, and on and on like that. The idea of the whole thing is to get rid of your cards as soon as you, as you can. I mean, theoretically, you could each time theoretically say, well, you know, I'm putting down four of these particular this number or this, uh, you know, card. I'm putting down four kings. But the problem with that is if somebody else has kings, then, you know, they know that you're lying. So that's kind of the pretense here is, you know, if, if you got four aces in your hand and you put down four aces when it's your turn, well, you know, I can be absolutely sure that if anybody else tells me that they have an ace, that they're lying. That it's not true, because I know that there's only four in the deck, and I have four. Or maybe I know that somebody else has four, and then it comes to somebody else's turn, and they say that they're putting down one ace, and who knows what it is. And they, you know, we know that they're lying because of that, you know, where there's four of them, and we know where they are. <clears throat> the same thing takes place when maybe I have three of a particular kind. Well, you know, if there's four players and I've got three twos and someone else comes up and says, well, here's I put down one two and he puts it on the top of the cards and it's face down. You know, the probability that that's a two is really somewhat limited. About a 33 percent chance is there's three other players. Any one of those could have the other two. I have three. So is a probability involved in that what they're saying is true. Well, you know, this type of reasoning is the way that we understand and support many of the aspects of Scripture, many of the stories, the biblical writings, the biblical stories from, you know, from Genesis all the way through. Let me give you a couple other examples. If I'm, a, you know, an excavator and, and I'm an archaeologist and I'm over in Israel somewhere and, and I start excavating a particular site, and I start coming across different stones, 
you know, that were maybe one was a cornerstone of a building and on it, it says, you know, something about the gates of Jerusalem or, and then I'm excavating somewhere else and, and another reference to Jerusalem is found. And then there's another one where, you know, it, it appears that there's a foundation and there's more stonework there or even scrolls or scriptures that say, you know, this is what the temple looked like and, you know, or the size of it in Jerusalem, you know, and you uncover a foundation and measure it and, hey, that's the same size. Those types of things affirm the things that we read about in Scripture. Sometimes we have to look at things and say, what are the odds that this is true? Well, you know, always when it comes to our faith in God, it's always about faith. I mean, we ha- we, we, we can get things proven to us in many cases, but it always, when it comes to our faith and who God is and what he's doing in the world, it always gets down to a blind, childlike faith. Well, you know, every year there's literally thousands of different findings and documents and stoneworks and, and you know, archaeological digs and things that find things that support the biblical accounts. And these are the things that, that we hold on to because, you know, a lot of times naysayers will say, you know, well, the Bible was just a book written by a bunch of people. You know, there's really no validity to it whatsoever. But if I have, you know, archaeological digs and findings and documents and things that support the writings of Scripture and support the, you know, the, 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 the time frame and the placement of many different things in Scripture, it adds to the validity that Scripture is a standalone, you know, document that we can trust in. And it's not just blind faith, but we can trust in it. Um, every year there's thousands of things that add to, you know, that arsenal of things that uh, support you know, the biblical uh, narrative. It might be coins that are found in reference to certain kings. And and they're at places where uh, we know that, you know, the proximate age has got to be this. And it lines up with the biblical text of maybe a story or a story about a particular city or a battle or something of that nature. In this series, we're going to look at the things that support the biblical accounts that we read about. And things that confirm that the rulers were there, that that the scriptures talk about, that the cities, you know, existed in the right time frames and that the cities are placed, you know, in Israel in the the right place as documented through scripture. We're going to talk about some of the customs and sacrifices and, you know, how we can support the idea that a great flood took place and things of that nature, the parting of the Red Sea and all of those things. Now, let me let me just start off and get something straight right off the bat. It Everything that we believe as a Christian always will come down to uh, faith in who God is. It will always be determined, you know, by what we believe in our heart of hearts. Do we trust God? Do we believe that even though we might not understand a particular circumstances or a certain writing or a certain thing that maybe God did, do we still trust in him and do we still believe that God is good? Well, I'm going to show you some things this morning and and I hope that this is going to be beneficial to you. Um, let me find the right one here. This one here is called the Rosetta Stone. Now, let me kind of give you a little history here. 
this particular stone uh, was founded or, or excavated over uh, in uh, Israel. Uh, it's, or actually, it was in Egypt, I'm sorry. And what happened was Napoleon ended up invading Egypt at one point. It was like in the 1700s. And while he, Napoleon was there invading Egypt, he not only brought military might and things of that nature, but he also brought people, a scientific team, to study the monuments of the land, to learn about the culture, to learn about the things that they could learn about over there, not just to conquer it, but also to understand it. And this was one of the most important finds, this Rosetta Stone, uh, of its day. And I'll tell you why, because the, the Rosetta Stone, as you can see, was written in basically three different languages. It was a story about a pharaoh, and it's written in hieroglyphics for Egypt, is written in Hebrew, and I don't really remember what the other uh, language was, but there's three different languages there describing the same story. And it is through understanding how to read one language that we could look at the same story in another language, like hieroglyphics, and learn how to read that. That's why it was such a monumental um, find, was this led us to the point to where we could understand another language that was really quite important uh, to our, our Christian faith. This is one that's uh, very familiar, and it's the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls came about as, a, as a, a herd of, or a bunch of shepherds, really stumbled across a cave back in 1947. So it wasn't that long ago. So back in 1947, in a very rugged area on the western side of the Dead Sea, you know, these shepherds are, are wandering around for some reason. There, there wasn't, you know, grazing land there or anything else. It was, it's a very remote, very hard area to get around in. Um, and there's really nothing there. And these shepherds stumble across this uh, cave. Well, inside this cave was probably the greatest archaeological find of the 20th century. In there, they found over 800 fragmented biblical documents, uh, most of them consisting of Hebrew writings. Uh, most of them were on leather of some, of some sort, and they had been written, they had been rolled up, they had been covered in many cases. Uh, many of them were also put into clay jars and vats to, uh, to protect them. I mean, these things were put into this cave uh, to be protected and preserved you know, for centuries down the road. So they found over 800 different fragments of Hebrew writings which support the, the Bible. Much of it is included in our scriptures. But also they found 190 different biblical scrolls, most of them included in our scriptures. I mean, it's like all of a sudden you find the, the Bible written by people from, you know, centuries ago. Well, one of the things that they also found in this cave that adds to this documentation was they found the complete book or the complete scroll of Isaiah. 
You know, this is this is quite a find when you find a, an author, a prophet like Isaiah, you know, a leader like Isaiah who's who's written quite a book and and quite a number of things, you know, about God and and how you know God's character and what to do and the things that took place and historical things. You know, we find the entire scroll. Granted, there were some holes in it, but you know, through other items that have been found over the years, we've filled in all the holes. So we, it was just a wonderful find, you know, during those days that we would find all of these biblical documents, and we could age them back to the times that they were early on. Some of them are copies. Some of them were originals. There's another one that's called the Tel Dan inscription. Let me pull it up here for you. On, on this stone, there's. it was discovered in 1993, and on there is a, um, there's an inscription, and it's B-Y-T-D-W-D, and, and what it translates to is the House of David. Now, all of us, this, this dates back to the 9th century B.C., you know, is when the, the House of David existed. And the, the inscription on here just supports the fact that the house of David was a real thing. David really lived. David really was a king. There really was a house of David, so to speak. <coughs> One of the ways the aging of this uh, stone has been uh, uh, accumulated is, you know, by the things that were over top of it. There was a layer of ash that was over top of this uh, area that they were excavating where this stone was found, and they knew where the ash came from. It was because the Assyrian nation came in and decimated the Israelites in this area, burned everything, and it, consequently there was this layer of ash that ended up being covered over with other things, dirt and dust and rainfall and all kinds of stuff and underneath what they could age that particular strata that particular layer of ash they knew that that came they dated it back in the 700s before christ and then underneath of that this is really a kind of a archaeologist dream when when a find is sealed by a layer of ash underneath of that they dated the layers where the stone was found uh, back from like 1035 uh, B.C., which lines up perfectly uh, with the inscriptions that are on it, uh, referencing the House of David. Let me show you a couple more here. I just want to, today I'm just kind of giving you some information. I'm giving you insight into some of the articles of things, some of the findings, some of the things that demonstrate that the Bible is authentic and that the Bible is historically accurate. Now back in 1979 uh, there was an archaeologist and uh, his name was uh, Gabriel Barquet and he was excavating a burial cave uh, back in in this place called Ketif Hintum and I'm probably saying that wrong. The tomb was a typical late 7th century B.C. burial structure. Uh, it was a typical Judean burial uh, area and uh, place uh, where this thing was, this rock cut out cave was being excavated. And what would happen normally is when a person would die, uh, if they were a person of influence or had some money or wealth, 
Uh, they normally would be buried in some kind of a rock cutout cave or structure. And when a person died, they were placed on the burial bench inside of this tomb, along with many of their personal items. Just like in the story about the, the burial of Jesus, you know, he was laid on a burial stone. He was dressed for the burial. You know, they prepared the body ahead of time. And all that would have been done here in this one, too. <clears throat> but what normally took place was after the body had been in the cave long enough to decompose so that the bones were left, then the burial cave would be reopened and the bones would be moved to what was called an ossuary box or a stone box. And then that would be buried beneath the burial bench. Well, when, when the archaeologists came to excavate this particular cave, they came across two small silver scrolls. Now, and that's what you're looking at here in these pictures. These are really, one, the, one in the middle is kind of an artist representation, but the other ones are photographic images of what this very fragile silver scroll looked like when they finally got it unrolled. They had a very difficult time unrolling this thing. It actually took them three years to unroll what you see in front of you uh, to the point to where it didn't destroy it. I mean, it was very, very fragile being that old, being made out of some type of uh, silver. It was it was like molten silver was poured on the ground into a sheet and, and was thinned out. And then they, they used it as a scroll to write on. And it was, then it was wound up very tightly and stored underneath this particular burial box. So when they finally got the thing unrolled, after three years, had to be done in the right temperature, the right humidity, the right, you know, everything had to be just perfect in order to unroll this thing without damaging it. Uh, they find on there, this the first thing they read was the word Yahweh, a description or the, or the name that uh, was used for God back in those days. Also, the scroll contained the benediction that Moses used that we read about in the book of Numbers in chapter 6. It took three years, like I said, to unroll and to decipher this scroll. And then the material was finally published in, in 1989. And right now today, if you, if you ever go to the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem, uh, it's on display there for people to actually see. These scrolls are the earliest known citations of a biblical text in the Hebrew language. And then they predate the earliest Dead Sea Scrolls by more than 400 years. You know, this supports the fact that, you know, Moses existed and Moses was a leader in the nation of Israel and that Moses, you know, he did exist and that the, some of the things that are recorded here are things that Moses also said. There's another one I want to show you. And this is called the Moabite Stone. Is back in the 1800s, probably the late 1800s actually, there was a missionary in Jerusalem that came across this stone that appeared to be from ancient times. <clears throat> well, when he told the owner of the stone what he thought it might be, the owner decided that I'm going to break it into pieces and then I'll sell it, and I'll make a lot more money that way if I part it out rather than sell the thing as, as one complete piece. So that's what he did. 
foolish, but that's what he did. Well, fortunately, there was a copy of the stone that was made, and that's what you're looking at here. Uh, this is in the museum in Paris, France, um, which is the, the world's most visited museum, by the way. Uh, and it dates back to the Moabites in the 9th century before Christ. And on the stone, it talks about a biblical king, King Mesha. And it was a it was a victory stone that was, you know, it was put together and describes some of his military victories. And it mentions him. I am Mesha, son of Chemosh, king of Moab. So it, it tells us about the nation of Moab that it existed. It shows us where the king, you know, conquered people. And, you know, again, it's supporting much of the biblical narrative that's out there. This particular stone talks about a war that took place that was fought in Israel back in 850 uh, BC, and it's the same one. If you want to go to the book of 2 Kings in chapter 3, uh, read that account, and this stone uh, commemorates that particular battle and the victory that was won. Uh, again, more support for what we read in the scripture that Many people say it was just a book written by people that's untrustworthy. There's another one I want to show you here, if I can get it. This is called the Epic of Gilgamesh. The Epic of Gilgamesh. Well, this was discovered. Um, what happened was back in 1872, there was a man by the name of George Smith and he was going through some tablets that had been found and were just simply being stored in a British museum. Well, he started getting into it and he started, he was an expert, and he started to translate some of the, the aspects of this stone. And, and what he found out was the stone talked about um, this great flood. And the, ex, the stone was excavated from the city of Nineveh. Uh, you'll remember the city of Nineveh and Jonah and, and that we read about in the Bible. Well, that's where this stone came from. But this guy is studying this thing in the British Museum. And come to find out, it tells a story. There's 12 tablets, but on one of the tablets, it tells the story about how God warned about an approaching judgment. And he warned this individual to build a boat to save himself you know, and others, his family and whatever, from this uh, this terrible flood that was going to come. It supports, if you read it all, it supports the biblical narrative uh, in Genesis chapter six, where where Noah, or I mean, where Moses describes the great flood and what took place. So that's just another one of those things that supports what we read about in Scripture. I also want to show you. Let's see what's next here. This is called the Annals of Senanarib. And this is a, it's a stone monument um, that is uh, one of the oldest ones in existence. Uh, it comes from way back, uh, references uh, many of the things in the uh, uh, Second King, the book of Second Kings uh, that Isaiah wrote. And it talks about a tribute that was paid to the Assyrian nation by the nation of Israel, you know, after they, you know, accepted the fact that the Assyrians won, won the war and they were now subject to the Assyrians. 
So again, it supports the biblical account of what took place in the nation of Israel. How many of you out there, and I know you really can't tell me, but how many of you out there uh, collect baskets? I know my mom used to collect baskets. Well, this particular basket, intact with the lid, um, it's it dates it's it's pre-pottery. It's it's neolith the Neolithic is that how you say it? Period. It's the oldest basket in in existence, and they have dated this at being ten thousand five hundred years old. The reason I'm I'm curious about this, or the reason I, I put this in there, is it shows you the type of work that they did even 10,000 years ago, where they learned to weave and to make things and to manufacture things. And, and this type of basket supports the biblical narrative of, you know, Moses being put in a basket on the river, uh, it, it, where the Apostle Paul was, you know, lowered in a basket over one of the walls that saved his life. And you know, things of that, you know, all those types of things. It just shows that they had that going for them back in those days. Now, I want you to understand that my intent for you today is not to bore you with a bunch of historic information, pictures that, you know, maybe you'll forget by the time you turn this off. But what I wanted to show you was that there is so much out there and still being discovered today that supports the biblical accounts that we read about in Scripture. More and more today, there's more documents, there's more burial tombs being uncovered, there's more uh, monoliths, there's more cornerstones from buildings that reference biblical accounts. All of these writings and th all of these types of things are being uncovered that support what Scripture tells us. So I just want to leave that in your box of your, your, your toolbox, because so many times people say, I don't believe in the Bible because there's no support or there's no evidence to show that it's accurate. Well, honestly, there is. There's a ton of evidence out there that supports the different aspects of what Scripture reports to us. So anyway, that's my deal for today. I want to thank you for dialing in and join me next week i won't be here so take next week off and uh, i'll see you the week after thanks and god bless tough questions for god is a teaching ministry of the rosebush united methodist church where we challenge our faith with some of the most difficult issues tough questions for god is available on facebook live Sundays at 11.30 a.m. or go on our website at toughquestionsforgod.org and just follow the links on the homepage for YouTube or via podcast. Thanks for joining and don't forget to like and share. God bless.